Welcome to So You Want to Be a Leader? Really, a Defy Expectations podcast. I'm Helen Honeysett, and usually I'm joined here with Vicky Hampson, but today you've just got me. And we're going to explore the highs and lows of leadership today with our guest, Sally Geyer, who is the CEO of a global not-for-profit association promoting standards and raising capabilities in commercial practice. And we're going to explore what that means and turn that into really simple language but basically changing the way we think about our commercial relationships. So Sally, welcome. Thank you very much, Helen. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks for inviting me onto this podcast. You can find out more about Sally on our website. So visit defyexpectations.co.uk for all of that information. So especially in the business world, contracts and those commercial agreements are a foundation of everything we do, no matter how good or strong our relationships are between people. It's contracts that make up the basis of how we act when the chips are down. You're on a real mission to do that differently. How are you supporting people to change their view of what a contract is? Yes, thank you. What an amazing question. And and it's so hard, let me tell you, because, of course, when you say the word contract to most people, they'll put their head in their hands, they'll groan. It all feels like too much like hard work. There's a lot of negativity around the, the word contract, and that negativity can be felt by business leaders as, as those who are operating in the construction and management of them. I'm always reminded when people ask me questions like this about a quote that came from the Nobel Prize Award Committee back in 2016. The Nobel Prize for Economic Science was won by two wonderful academics called Oliver Hart and Bent Holmstrom for their work on incomplete contracts. And in the award announcement, they quoted... Modern economies are held together by innumerable contracts. And that, for me, was just fabulous and so profound and so important for a body like Nobel to be talking about contracts in this way and for these two academics to have won their prize. And, and I think there's, there's two sort of really important elements to, to that award. One is it, it was the prize for economic science. And we talk at World Commerce and Contracting about the fundamental fact that contracts are first and foremost economic instruments, but they've been turned into these legal weapons, the stick that, that you might beat people with, but also that they were awarded their prize for their work on incomplete contracts. And that's a really important point because it's really delves into the fact that we have to recognize that in a world that is now dominated by the delivery of services, we've shifted away from a world that's dominated by product to a world that's dominated by service. That automatically implies longer-term arrangements. We talk about things like servitization, where we actually have turned products into services, longer-term services. And as such, when you're entering into these agreements, they're not spot agreements anymore. You're not purchasing this product, this good. You're entering into an arrangement over a longer period of time. And if the last five years has taught us anything, 
it's that we do not know what is around the corner. We cannot possibly predict every eventuality. And we then have to embrace change. We have to structure our contracts such that they can help us navigate uncertainty and change as opposed to the traditional approach to contracting. So we really need to use contracts to help us navigate inevitable uncertainty rather than, as I've said, just trying to cover every single what if. What if this happens? What if that happens? And unfortunately, what we've done in our approach to contracts is we've remained wedded to that product-based mentality, the certainty. that, And we try and use contracts to drive certainty in a completely uncertain world, an uncertain environment. So part of what we do in terms of how to help people change their view of a contract is really for it to be this operational guide, these guiding principles that we need to help us in this uncertain environment. And, you know, the way we negotiate, again, is and I often talk about the fact, unfortunately, we negotiate for the divorce, not for the marriage. Our negotiation focus is on terms and conditions that will matter when everything goes horribly wrong. Limitation of liabilities, warranties, indemnities. We know from our research that that's what we spend most of our time negotiating. But those terms don't help us set up for success. So again, It's about being outcome driven, about having this mentality that encourages you to think about the outcome that you're trying to achieve and what you need to do, what you need to put in place to help guide you to that ultimate outcome. It's a very, very different mindset, but it's one that we advocate for hugely. And it's part of everything that we do in the context of our research and training and education as well. And quite a human one. Actually, because you talk about contracts being economic instruments, and yes, there's also that financial contract aspect, but guiding principles requires behaviors. Absolutely. Yeah, it's very, very, very true. And when we support organizations with um, what we term relational contracting and, and relational workshops, and you're absolutely right, what that is about is culture. It's about the behaviors and the culture because You can write whatever you like down on a piece of paper. You can write, we will collaborate, but that doesn't mean you're going to. What you need to do is create that environment in which that that can happen. One of the reasons I was so fascinated to actually have you on this podcast is, yes, leadership, which is what we all talk about. There is a critical aspect of being able to be commercially competent and negotiation contracts already important. But there's also, I've seen, a sense that contract negotiation is somebody else's job. Get the lawyers, get the finance people involved. And actually, as a leader, I'm about execution, not about the creation. And you view it very, very differently. And that's one of the things I love. There's that human right in the center. And when we talk about leadership, we talk about human-centered leadership. And the two go so closely in hand. But what led you to have such a passion about changing how we engage with contracts, with people, with all of those essence that build those economic instruments to allow people to thrive? 
Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And I, I would imagine that lots of people feel this way that I had no idea what my career journey and career trajectory was going to be. I trained as a lawyer originally. That was my background. But you know what? I ran for the hills. I suddenly, having wanted to be a lawyer since I was a little girl, I went to university and law school and came out and went, oh no, this is not what I want to do at all. Oh no, what am I going to do? So I somewhat stumbled around for the first few years of, of my career. But then I fell into, literally fell into the world of commercial and contract management and found a real passion there. And I guess what I was able to do was turn the legal training that I'd had in, into something that was very practical. And I really enjoyed bringing people together. I, I was that hub in the organization where I was bringing sales together, bringing finance, bringing ops, bringing the data sales. I was bringing all of these people together in order to construct and put out the, the right agreement for the organizations in question. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. I really, really enjoyed my roles. I then set up my own little consultancy for a while as a young mum. I found 20 years ago, navigating the world of motherhood and being a businesswoman at the same time, really, really challenging. So I decided to take things into my own hands and set up my own little consultancy, leveraging the network that I had been able to create. And again, I absolutely loved what I was doing. And during that period of time, and I was predominantly in that context, supporting small to medium enterprise organizations with their commercial contracting challenges. And I was a member of a professional body called, at the time we were called the International Association for Contract and Commercial Management, which is a real mouthful, which is why we changed our name to World Commerce and Contracting. But I was a member of the association and I became inspired by the work that they were doing. I got very involved. I got involved in supporting events and running workshops. And I remember the president and CEO at the time, Tim Cummins, suggesting to me, implying that I could perhaps lead the organization in the future. And I remember thinking, don't be ridiculous. I couldn't possibly do that. Classic female imposter syndrome. And he asked me to come and work for the association. And I was like, oh, I'm not sure I want to. You know, I've run my own business for a long time now and I'm very happy and I'm very proud of what I've achieved. But you know what? What turned me in the end was being able to get out of the weeds of the work that I was doing. I was there in the weeds, helping these small to medium enterprise, negotiating contracts, redlining, doing all of that stuff. Suddenly, I could take my head above the parapet and look around and take that really extensive view of this field of work. And it, it was inspirational. And I felt that I could do more and more with that mindset, that view than I was doing at the micro level by myself. And so that's what led me to starting to work for the association. And then, yes, I was, you know, really, really honored to be invited by the board back in 2018 to be the CEO. And I never in a million years dreamt when I graduated from law school that that would be where I'd end up. But such is the way with, as I said, so many people's professional journeys. Yeah. And it's a story that resonates. So you've taken that helicopter view of the world of contracts and commercial 
negotiation. What do you see this changing over the next few years? And if you had a magic wand, what would be the one change that you would love to globally make to really change people's views and behaviors around that contracting? Goodness me. So I think the right answer to that question is uh, applying user-based design to contracting. And it's not something that's ever been done. We have operated in this environment where lawyers are, well, contracts, I'm sorry, are designed by lawyers for lawyers in anticipation of litigation. And that's not helpful. And that doesn't drive the outcomes that we need. So and we've also got to remember that it's typically not lawyers who are responsible for the performance of the agreements. You know, they get involved at at the front end, putting negotiating and putting in place the agreements up to signature. And then they get handed over the fence to other people to perform and manage. And again, we know from our research that value is won and lost in that post-award environment. That's where it really, really matters. And too often our approach to negotiation is adversarial and so it doesn't set us up in the right way for delivering on that positive outcome. So, and when I talk about user-based design, we do a lot of work at WorldCC looking at things like plain language and actually structuring agreements that in a much more navigable way so that you can use them as those operational guides. And those individuals who are responsible for the performance of the agreement can usefully use the contract rather than it just sitting in a drawer and waiting for everything to go wrong. And of course, the risk that's associated with that is phenomenal. If we put together contracts that nobody can understand, so you chuck them in a drawer and then you stick your finger up in the air and hope that you're doing the right thing. It's ludicrous. It's bonkers. But we approach contracting that way and yet we do. And so I I think that would be, for me, that would be my wish because I think it would drive so much positivity. It would drive outcomes. It would drive engagement. It would just drive collaboration. We know it drives greater transparency. Um, And user-based design can be on a broad spectrum. It, It can simply at a B2B level be the use of plain language that's accessible to all with a structure and a layout that allows you to find elements of the contract more easily. It can go from that all the way through to one of my favorite stories, which is the comic contract, a comic contract that was put together by an organization, a a big corporate called Clement Gold, uh, and they employ farm workers in South Africa to pick oranges, to produce the orange juice that they sell in big supermarkets around the world. Most of those farm workers are women, and many of them are semi-literate or illiterate. So when you put a formal, traditional employment agreement in front of them, they have absolutely no idea what it is that they've signed. That in turn creates levels of mistrust. They don't actually know what their responsibilities are. They're not clear what time they're supposed to turn up, how long they can take for lunch, how many oranges they're expected to pick a day, all of those sorts of things that form part of the agreement. 
what they have to do if they're off sick for any reason, et cetera, et cetera. So this very inspirational lawyer in South Africa, a guy called Robert DeRoy, was instrumental behind the creation of this comic contract. And the response to it has been absolutely remarkable. And, and there's a wonderful video that I would love to share. And you, you can have Add it. it as a link. Uh, absolutely. These women talk about how they feel valued as human beings because they've been met at their level and they feel supported. And, and it has driven this far greater sense of trust between employer and employee and far greater productivity because everybody's happy. Everybody understands what they're supposed to do. And that's the power of a contract. And that's why I get so passionate about contracts. And that's why if I had a magic wand, I'd apply user-based design appropriately across the whole spectrum. So the contracts become, as you use those beautiful words, a guiding principle, those guidebooks rather than threats. Yes, exactly. Exactly so. And that point you made about these women feeling valued, productivity would have gone up, business would have gone up. We talk yep. about you know, human it's positive for everybody. Yeah. yeah. These, these are win-wins when you start to really think about who is going to be using this rather than actually how many people in suits can we sit around a table creating words that no one else understands on a page? It's yeah. fantastic. <laughs> so the next question I'm going to ask you is a bit about our DNA. So we're defy expectations because we like to be a little bit defiant. We like to be a little bit rebellious in what we do. And there's certain aspects of that in our business which are very overt and some which are slightly more covert. But if you were to share or pay forward a defiant pearl of wisdom for young people going into leadership or going into their careers and thinking about leading in the future, what would it be? Well, I've thought a lot about this question and I'd struggled to think of one. And so if I might, I'll be really quick with five key. Please go for it. The more, the better. <laughs> so, uh, and I would start and I would argue that this is probably the one of the most important is resiliency. You, you have to be resilient as a leader. You're, as a leader, you're going to face challenges, you're going to face setbacks, and you, you're going to have to overcome them. You're going to have to learn from them and come back stronger. So resiliency for me is a, a critical attribute. Empathy as well. I'm a big fan of servant leadership. And of course, running a not-for-profit, that really matters. I exist to serve our members. The, the World CC team is there to serve a membership of around 80,000 people around the world. It's, for me, true leadership is it's not about power and authority. You don't demand leadership. You don't demand that power or authority. A leader is somebody that people do want to, to convene around. And that's really important. And you have to take tremendous personal responsibility for that. Diversity, diversity of opinion and thought around you. I remember one piece of advice I was given by somebody that I admired quite a lot. I remember saying to him, and I, it was when I was setting up my own little business. And I said, what's the secret of your success? What, what is it? What can I learn from you? And, and he turned around to me and he said, just surround yourself with people who know more than you do. And I remember thinking, wow, 
that feels like contrary to what you would do as a leader, because as a leader, you're at the top of the organization and you know everything. But of course, actually, that's the critical point, knowing that you do not know everything and surrounding yourself with people who know more than you do is. And, and that little piece of that pearl of wisdom is something that I have always taken with me. Authenticity. And I like to think that I am a what you see is what you get person. I don't have a different persona at work to my persona at home with my family. And I am who I am. And I really believe in being authentic. And I believe that that helps be a true leader. So authenticity, huge. And finally, that point about curiosity, never stop learning. You know, as a leader, don't ever think that you know it all because you don't. And the world is changing around us and we have to continue to be sponges, continue to learn and continue to be curious. So those would be my pearls of wisdom. Fantastic. Thank you. And I think considering you've spoken about, you spend your life creating these guiding principles for people to operate by, I think you've got five really good, strong ones there. <laughs> It's quite interesting because we talk about soft skills, resilience, empathy. They're not soft at all. They're some of the oh. hardest things you have to learn. But at our beginning of our careers, we're not really told to put a focus on them. No, it's so true. And, you know, I think it's really interesting because, again, I go back to my, my law school training and think about what I learned at university and law school. And not much of it prepared me for the world of work and for the workplace and for what I was going to be experiencing. And, you know, I couldn't agree with you more, Helen. I get somewhat frustrated when I hear those skills and attributes being spoken of as soft, because they're not. They're very, very difficult and not many people get them right. And, yeah, I would certainly not say that I'm perfect and I get them right all the time at all either. But I do know how important they are and I do think about them all the time and I do challenge myself constantly. But these are not easy things to get right. And we don't see many leaders demonstrating those skills. Right. But the story you told earlier about the team in South Africa creating workers who feel valued, who understood what productivity is, that's a really hard business result. That's more cash in the bank yeah. by just driving these soft, she says, using uh, quotation marks, skills as a true business value. Well, thank you so much for being our guest today, Sally. It's a pleasure. Well, if you've been as inspired as we have with our amazing and fascinating guest, Sally, today, check back in as we'll be running these regularly and we are covering every aspect of the skills, behaviours, mindsets and capabilities that leaders will need to continuously develop and evolve to thrive. Do check out our website, defyexpectations.co.uk, and remember to follow us to get notified of our next episode. Mm -hmm.